Hi, welcome to the Creative Review Podcast. I'm Eliza Williams, and for today's podcast, we're focusing on gaming and have a special guest in the form of designer Darren Wall, who designs and publishes books about computer games and gaming under the imprint Read Only Memory. Darren's based in Barcelona, so we're doing this recording via Skype. Welcome to the show, Darren. Thanks for having me. First off, I thought we'd just talk a little bit about your own personal history with gaming. Um, have you always been into computer games and, and when did you start with that? Um, yeah, I think for me, video games were sort of the same, were kind of wrapped up in that uh, discovery of music period that I think most people have when they're a teenager. Like when you're reading your first novels and you're, you're finding out about all these important albums, you know, you're trying to listen to Jeff Buckley or you're trying to find about, out about Joy Division, you know, you're trying to kind of like educate yourself about, um, you know, the, the, the arts. And I think at the same time, you know, video games were like a really prevalent form and it was kind of going hand in hand with that, um, that period. So I think uh, things like I used to play the Commodore Amiga, I used to have a Sega Mega Drive and a Nintendo. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was kind of part of the, it's part of our family, really. My dad was kind of always you know, an advocate of having a computer in the house and it was always half a tool and then half a plaything as well. So yeah, it was just always kind of part of part of life, I guess. And and has it informed your sort of design work at all? I mean, is the, is the graphics of computer games influenced the way you work? Yeah, well, I mean, saying it about it being a tool in the home, I think I, I was sort of learning to, well, I was going to say learning to be creative. I was learning to copy things I liked using the PC we had in the house. I think I remember copying Designers Republic posters when I was 14 and mm-hmm. uh, and taking them in to show my design uh uh, my kind of DT teacher and he sort of looked bemused at all these Japanese typefaces um, but I was I was using them as much to try and create games and to uh, try and learn how to design desktop publishing packages if, if that means anything to anybody I was like learning how to make sort of like uh, slightly crappy kind of um, hospital news like pamphlets on my computer at home while I was playing video games certain nights as well so it was always about that the, the machine, the computer was always about possibility, I think, not just from mm. the world you could explore by playing games, but about what you could achieve by um, a graphics package or a music package or something like that. So it was, it was very much a tool. Yeah, yes. And talk to me a little bit about read-only memory. When did you first start doing the publishing and what sort of prompted that? Um, so I got to that thing that all designers sort of will, you know, after a pint down the pub talk to you about, is, which is when they hit 30. And they start, to, they start to wonder why there aren't any art, you know, why there aren't any kind of graphic designers doing what they're doing who are 40, you know, why they don't see themselves kind of in future generations. There's, there's this kind of like, uh, like ascendancy that happens to designers when they get to a certain age. They have to kind of reinvent themselves. And it, it's, quite a stressful, okay. um, it's quite a stressful thing to realise because it's sort of not brief, it's just kind of in the air. And um, I was... So you, you mean that you worry that you'll, you'll sort of run out of work, basically? That you'll, I think it was more that I didn't... obsolete. Yeah, well, or just I didn't, you know, designers, senior designers, middleweight designers, you know, like I, I, I saw myself surrounded by similar faces, but as I got older, I felt that, you know, there was somewhere else to go. And, and I didn't really see myself as being an art director in an agency. I, I, like I tried agency work and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just not wired that way. It didn't really work. So I was like, I, you know, I just kind of felt this kind of entrepreneurial push, I suppose, to do something. And I didn't really know what that was. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing record covers for uh, a good few years. And before that, I was doing book covers. So it was very much about like the outside of things, packaging things. And um, I became a bit frustrated that it, I wasn't working with writers um, I was reading a lot okay. and I was like I, I really love the um, 
the, the multidisciplinary side that comes from publishing and about how you get involved with so many different people to create one singular thing. Um, so I set about making one book, which was supposed to be a portfolio piece, you know, the kind of like to get work doing books. And that was uh, a really strange idea, which was to make a documentary history book on a really arcane subject, like a one software developer who made games in the UK during the mid-90s, who were basically like the Monty Python of gaming. They were called Sensible Software. And I was going to do this like, okay. incredibly serious, like verging on pretentious art book about their history, um, almost like a documentary film. And we'd speak to everybody um, and archive their, um, their back catalogue of production artwork and put it all in this book, almost like a Fiden book or a Thames and Hudson book. And we went to yeah. Kickstarter and it kind of resonated. It kind of like just sort of pushed a button, I think, and it snowballed from there. And rather than actually that being a portfolio piece, it turned me into a publisher. So I stepped away from design so much and I started making books. Okay, and at that point, were there books about gaming of the kind that you're describing or was it very much new to uh, Yeah, it was new. And it was quite, it was quite funny because initially I took the idea around publishers because I used to work for Faber and Faber. So I kind of, publishing's quite small. And I thought, okay, well, I, I've, I know enough people that I could try and put this on the desk of, you know, some people who might be interested. And the weird thing was that the response seemed to be unanimous across publishers, which was, and my idea was to make these really niche, focused, high-end, like expensive books on like one video game publisher from the 90s. And everything up until then had been like, uh, the 100 greatest video game characters or 50 games you should play before you die with like a picture of Space Invaders on the front. It's like really like sort of broad entry level stuff about games. And I was almost sort of going for this kind of <laughs> like pretentious like gallery book style thing about, you know, really niche topics. Um, but that was the kind of mm. book I wanted to read. And I um, from Kickstarter, I found out that yeah, like, I mean, our books don't sell in the hundreds of thousands. It's more like there's a thousand or maybe breaking into 10,000 copies we sell of our books. But for those books that we make, I think the people that are buying them know this stuff so well. And I think if you're communicating to them on that level, it's such a lovely thing to get a book that's made just for you, that, you know, that really speaks yeah. to your interests. Like if you find a book on a band or a writer or a movie you love, or there's a documentary about something you adore, if it's done with love and passion and it's really focused, then I think that's the most wonderful you know, that's the most wonderful form of um, fan service, I suppose, literally fan service. So that's what our books were about. Um, and yeah, the, the publishers didn't really get it. And we've kind of come full circle now. I consult for Thames and Hudson and um, we're making gaming books with them okay. now. But that was, you know, that's like five years sort of like <laughs> circular journey to come back to it again. Yes. And so it seems the perfect Kickstarter is the perfect medium for this. I mean, was that straightforward when you first did it? And have you learned things from doing your Kickstarter projects? Yeah, I mean, Kickstarter was never part of it until quite late on. We had the book idea ready. Okay. And then lots of no's, lots of nice emails, but no's. And then Kickstarter suddenly blew up. And yeah, it was, um, it was video games. There was one called Double Fine Adventure, which was really big. I think it was like 2011 it made. It was the first million dollar um, Kickstarter campaign and that's when I thought okay this is kind of our last chance to make this book so we decided to to try and make a crowdfunding campaign we did it in dollars in the states at the time and it was really like a really weird time for Kickstarters this was the kind of like I suppose most people know like Kickstarter pretty well now there was like a gold rush time for Kickstarters um, and oh. that felt exciting at the time and I think now we're kind of dealing with a lot of people who who never got their stuff, you know, like who kind of the horror stories of people who yeah. gave a hundred dollars or something and just never got anything at all. So the the thing I've learned from it is that um, 
it's like customer service for Kickstarter, like looking after the people who've who've made your project happen. Like we owe them more than we do, um, you know, a kind of a, a book buyer, if you like, because they're kind of taking a punt on our idea and they're trusting us to deliver. Yeah. So, we, I mean, we've done I've done seven now um, Kickstarter campaigns and um, and and all successful, but um, I think what I've learned is that it's about being really honest and um, accountable, I suppose, and just kind of answering questions when they come up and not kind of feeling like you need to work on it in private. You have to be quite, it's quite a weird thing to be a creative working for 10 years and then like you suddenly bring these things to market. Like the traditional way of publishing a book is like, here's a book. We've been working on it for a year, but you never knew about it. Whereas now you have to make a book over the period of a year with everybody waiting for it. And, you know, video game fans really care about these things that they're right. Um, so you'll get lots, you know, I'm really kind of, I speak to the people who fund our books every day and, you know, they'll ask questions about what's in it and suggestions and they'll help out. So it's a really new way of making books, but, um, I love it. It's really social. Yeah. It's almost a bit more like a kind of market stall setting, isn't it? Almost where you're sort of directly talking to your customers and you're responding to what they want i mean do you respond to what they want have, have any of the books been prompted by your audience yeah oh god so we did this the second book we did was um we were approached after doing the sensible software book by sega um which for, for mm. you know, kind of the inner 13 year old was blown away by that we just got like a cold email saying would you like to do a book on an aspect of sega history and so my idea was to sort of pretend that um, the design museum for instance was doing a history of the sega mega drive and this would be the book in the bookshop that was kind of the the internal brief that it would be extremely ambitious and like really heavily based on research so we wouldn't leave anything out so Sega gave us some stuff but it wasn't you know it was maybe about a third of what was put in the book um, and that the rest of it was prompted by the Kickstarter campaign like we managed to get in touch with the original uh, the Japanese president at the time we were put in touch with his handler and a translator and you know we organized these interviews with him and none of that could have been facilitated by Sega because those relationships had you know they didn't exist anymore but from the people who got in touch with us who wanted this book to be like a perfect um, historical document they propped it up so they made it happen so um, it would have been impossible it's a really good example about how Kickstarter can be amazing and transformative but that book would not have in any way been the same thing if we'd have funded it privately and worked on it in, in private because it just wouldn't you wouldn't have half the stuff in it that it did we found a collect we found yeah. a collector in canada who like has um most of the original paintings that were used for the box art and, like he's collected them all over his entire life and he was like a really private humble guy he didn't really see you know he was just doing it for his, himself and he let us photograph them all and put them in the book and we've handed them back to sega wow. now and they use them in their you know as part of their archive so we've kind of we've populated sega's archive by making that book and that's all because of the the people that have funded the book and helped out making them. Yes, that's fascinating. On the whole, do you, do you find that games designers and maybe fans do this more often, actually, but do you find that they keep stuff? Do they keep ephemera from the making of games or is it that things get chucked and... Oh, yeah. So on the, on the publisher side, I think what happens is... I think it happens in anything that's kind of recent history, like um, and especially something so kind of ephemeral and pop cultural as video games that you've done it and it was big for a year and then it's really old hat like to kind of like look look at it mm. as like oh geez that's not going to be worth anything and they're literally thrown in the skip and there's lots of stories about people mm. extracting posters and original artwork and production drawings from you know from skips or from um, from rubbish bins and things like that um, but I think it's the fans who are the most diligent about getting this stuff off eBay or wherever it ends up and archiving it. And um, 
I think contrary to popular conception, like with everyone we've dealt with, uh, we're doing a book on arcade machines at the moment. So that's been really difficult to get hold of. These arcade machines are huge. They weigh tons. There's only like, you know, 100, 200 of them ever made. And they are kept by collectors who restore them and look after them and the communities that share information about how they're put together and, you know, different parts that are um, that they're restoring. And they've been really helpful in giving us everything that we needed. And, you know, that goes back to Sega. So I think there's like a, a reciprocal thing between the fans curating this stuff and um, I guess we're on the side of saying that it's not... Um, that, that previously these things would have been called like hobbies or... Um, you know, kind of like almost like lumped in with the kind of stigma of stamp collecting. And then so suddenly Ooh. there's this resurgence and suddenly it's curation and suddenly it's um, uh, suddenly it's like a cultural preservation. Like I think it's suddenly like video games as a form has risen so quickly in the past five years, certainly since we started making books that I think is really recognized that what people are doing now in terms of keeping these games and looking after them is incredibly culturally important. Whereas I think maybe 10 years ago, uh, I think, you know, there would have been silence around the dinner table if you told them about what you kept in your garage, you know. Um, and I think with the, the V&A is obviously doing an exhibition that starts uh, in September on video games. I guess it's, you know, probably the most, the biggest um, cultural recognition of video games as a form in the gallery. Um, and I think, you know, we are reaching a point where it's becoming uh, mainstream, which is long overdue. Yeah. Yes, it does seem long overdue. I mean, do you... It's interesting you say that you've noticed it in the last five years. Presumably that's partly because you're, you're deep in it yeah. in the, for that period. But, but what do you think's maybe tipped it? Is it just the length of time? Or is there some, have there been moments that you've noticed that have maybe made people think, actually, we need to recognise this more? I think I have, I have a lot of theories about this because it, it did seem to kind of become zeitgeisty when we were doing it. And I think the prevalence of the, the web and social media makes it really easy to share this stuff and to find other people mm. who are into it. And therefore, I think it, um, it kind of condenses and magnifies that kind of pool of knowledge really quickly. So in terms of people pulling together interviews, translations, understandings about Japanese video games and um, arcane video game subjects, I think that came together really quickly. There's like a huge kind of like crowdsourced um, archival going on of all of this stuff, and it happened really quickly. Um, and I also think it's an age thing. I think the people who are kind of tastemakers for culture now. Uh, people like Charlie Brooker or, you know, Ryan Johnson, who's mm. just done uh, Star Wars, or Duncan Jones, who, David Bowie's son, who's um, like a, a famous film director now. Like, uh, and people talk about politicians being, you know, of generations of, uh, of game players, like Tom Watson, the Labour MP, is like a big fan of Elite, I happen to know. Right. And it's like, you know, we, the people who um, run our media, run our countries and... Um, you know, kind of the trickle down of that acceptance of the form now is becoming apparent, I think. And, you know, you'll get films with video game references in or, um, you know, like uh, uh, kind of like rap music and hip hop has got a lot of kind of, you know, the number of times I hear Sega Mega Drive mentioned in uh, like uh, UK hip hop, it's kind of like it's, it's become a thing now. It's become a it's become kind of part of the culture, a kind of a part of pop culture. Mm. And I think it's just it's, it's kind of crept up on us for all of the time and over the past 10 years that I think video games has longed to be accepted and then occasionally shunned being accepted and kind of indulged in its outsider nature. I think it is now kind of mm. unavoidable that, um, you know, that people everywhere play games. It's true, although you still, I still feel that a lot of the reporting is very kind of 
you know, it's about addiction and I mean, yeah. you know, think of the stuff about Fortnite recently. I know, yeah. is, you know, all you I feel you sort of hear this thing of all oh, parents have to be careful and which is I mean, I feel in you know, I feel I've grown up with video games. I'm not actually a particularly big gamer myself, but I feel conscious of it being my kind of lifetime that it's occurred in. And yet I feel that that sort of narrative from the sort of mainstream is still that it's bad for yeah. you. And uh, do, you, do you feel that's changing much? Well, I mean, if you asked me like two weeks ago, I probably would have gone, yeah, you know, it has changed. And then there was that Fortnite article <laughs> in the Daily Star and I thought, well, no, nothing's changed at all because we're, we're making a book on a game called Wipeout at the moment, which was like the, one of the big launch PlayStation titles. And it was the first game that really kind of brought clubbing culture uh, and I suppose kind of just adult um, outs. I suppose it was outside the music at the time, electronica music into video games. And it just seemed incredibly adult. And the media did what they mm. did um, at the time, which was to react to it and react to the advertising, which was kind of <laughs> sort of like deliberately inflammatory and kind of like reference drug culture and club culture and sort of just seemed to be, you know, have quite a swagger about it. But they just sort of went into a Daily Mail outrage mode about it. And it was funny to see what happened with Fortnite recently. And that was a, a Daily Star article when it was the same thing and I think the media yeah. almost doesn't know what to do with video games and I think some of it is intimidation because video games is so huge like, I mean like it's such a massive industry it doesn't really need or rely upon you know tabloid newspapers to be supportive of it it's quite ambivalent about whether they support it or not it's not going to affect the yeah. sales of Grand Theft Auto it's just not so it's, it's become so powerful I think video games having never really been truly accepted by mainstream media and no mainstream media media is sort of quite impotent rendered you know we, i mean there's so much debate at the moment about how mainstream media can't keep up with the internet um and can't yeah. really um and, and seems to be sort of lessening as a form of importance and that's kind of not how we're documenting everyday life anymore i think that video games kind of won't ever really kind of court mainstream media so it will always be this kind of outsider culture in a way and with its own set of rules its own set of jokes um, and it's kind of codified languages that um, either you kind of you find that funny and you want to be a part of it, or it does seem intimidating. And I think those things kind of work for it and, uh, and against it. Yeah, it's interesting because I was just thinking the way I said then, you know, I'm, I wouldn't really call myself a gamer, and I think yeah, right, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, you know, I sort of know I've played games a lot in my life, and I know of you know some games more than others, I suppose. But I do feel there's an element of the club, right? Yeah. That you wouldn't you wouldn't sort of have that same reaction if you were talking about the movies that. You know, I go to the movies fairly often, but there's not a kind of word for being, yeah. apart from a cine, you know, cinephile. But you wouldn't like apologise for not being one either, would you? Or like feel no, that you No, exactly. It's of, like you can or you yeah. can't. Yeah. And it doesn't kind it's of a... suppose a lack of interest in the form. Like, you know, if everyone's kind of, uh, you know, telling you how good Mario Odyssey is, that you're not going to feel that you're not qualified to play <laughs> you know, a Mario game. Yeah. But um, exactly. yeah, I think we all come with... with um, we, we all come with qualifiers and apologies about having played video games or being interested in video games. And um, I don't think that's going to go away. So I, th I do think that just kind of is part of the conversation about video games. And I think that's about, I think that will always be a part of it, certainly for the next kind of few decades. Yeah. And in terms of the books you make, are you, you've talked about the fans. Are you really pitching it at fans? Or do you sometimes think, well, actually, you know, potentially this through its look and its feel could reach a wider audience or are you really sort of thinking okay I'm aiming it at the the people who already care about yeah this? I am but I th yeah so I mean one good example is one we've done recently which was on the bitmap brothers who were kind of uh they were kind of like mm. um in in the book we did refer to them as the almost like the uh 
the Ultravox or the Depeche Mode of gaming, these kind of like lofty, cool, um, you know, kind of like electronic cowboys. They were just, they came out of nowhere, they did amazing stuff, and then they disappeared off the face of the planet. It was almost kind of like this um, this kind of fairy tale rock star story. And they made these amazing games that all seemed like they belonged to this same sci-fi universe. Um, and, you know, the book has no type on the cover. We just have an illustration that's been commissioned by one of the original artists. If you know all that stuff, then hopefully it will just set fireworks off in your head and it will just, you know, it's all for you. It's all kind of built in a way that you understand what's going on. However, I think what I'm really interested in is people who are just generally interested in pop culture being able to get in. And I feel like even mm. if you don't understand all of the, um, the technical stuff or the world at the time, I'm careful to kind of like steer the writing in such a way that it, you know, if, if I read a book about Leonard Cohen and I don't understand contemporary history at the time, I don't think it puts me off from reading it that I don't know about American culture or if I don't know about um, references to, um, to kind of literary works that he's bringing in. I think you, you, you read around outside these histories. So I think it kind of has to test like pass the mum test a bit I don't want to make these things that are inaccessible yeah. <laughs> so inaccessible or I'm kind of going against what I said before about gaming but uh, I think it has to kind of it has to flatter the fans you know you have to kind of you put all these hours into playing these games I want it to be for you but I do want people to kind of to get in I was on the um, one of the, the biggest things I thought was like a big deal for me was that um, Monocle magazine reviewed that book <laughs> and it felt, felt like such yeah. a kind of odd thing to be like next to scented candles and um and kind of like you know expensive horn rim sunglasses uh, that it was like because we designed it like a design object and it was a cultural item but to kind of to reach that side of gaming is kind of our ambition with read any memory to kind of to make it more accessible but without you know with we'll still speak to the core fan base but you know it's a pleasure to be talking about it on creative review because i've always thought that we were doing it for gamers primarily but i've always you know i've come come at it from an angle i you know like you i don't I'm a, I'm a bit of a lapsed gamer. I've got a dusty Nintendo Switch in the corner of my front room. I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not playing every day. So it's, it's trying to be about yeah. just being as curious as I am, but I'm not, you know, I'm not kind of like on the front line of gaming. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And presumably that might sort of help the kind of gender balance, which is often sort of talked about as, of how male uh, gaming is. Oh, yeah. Actually almost sort of aggressively so in some areas, obviously not all... But presumably, this sort of that sort of approach of making it about its cultural form could help balance that as well. Is that something you're conscious? Yeah, of? definitely. I mean, it was something that. So I also run another publishing company, which is called Volume. Um, we're a crowdfunding publisher for design books, and um, so from crowdfunding books, you notice um, about. I mean, you just get a list every day about who's bought your book, who's backed the book, and. Um, when we're doing, when I do any of our the read only memory books, it's it's ninety five percent male. You know, it's really that, um, you know, okay. that skewed. And then as soon as we launched volume, I just suddenly noticed that it was just bang down the line fifty fifty. We did a book with Anthony Burrell, and it was like, you know, you could tell that the gender divide was like bang down the middle. So it's been something that mm. not only from our audience, but from the. Um, well, I guess it comes from this, like reading the books, researching them. You know, you, I've become more of a researcher than a designer day to day now. So you learn about this industry and how it started from these were for whatever reason and I still sort of have a lot of conversations with friends about this about why computers were adopted by men and used by young boys I suppose to, to you know that this was the start yeah. of their career I don't know why that was my friend said the other day I think it was the messaging yeah? my understanding of it is that a lot of the messaging and advertising for computers in the early days were were that they just targeted men I, th- I think that's partly what happened and then yeah. 
it went from there but like it was I well I said it was like a tool but I guess in like in the very literal kind of home improvement sense it was like it was a tool yeah. it was like a you know it was like a chainsaw or uh you know like um just it wasn't it, there, was, there was something kind of sort of particularly it mild about it. yeah definitely and yeah. I I mean my friend were we talking about this uh recently and a friend of mine she said when I was a kid uh she said that she would go into toy shops or to kind of um uh, kind of hobby shops and we forgot this you know like these these were gendered shops you know you'd kind of go down one aisle and you'd kind of get you yeah. know uh haberdashery stuff you get dressmaking stuff and on the other side you get kind of like um uh kind of like airplane kits and tank kits and the computers would be very much on that side and you know for whatever reason yeah. it was just filtering down that this is who it was aimed at and it's funny that if that is the case you know I'm sure there are lots of different reasons but you know like we're still dealing with that now like it's still incredibly um associated with being male and I think statistically like more women play video games than men but I think just like the the idea that games are unhealthy or um or damaging to young children they are in essence male not only are they aimed at men that there is something masculine about them um and I don't think that's true but it's it's a it's apparent the last 20 years of gaming history has been incredibly incredibly male Yes, it'll be interesting to see because there are so many more uh, female gamers now. It'll be interesting to see how that changes the design and the feel of games going forward, or maybe just the variety of games, because inevitably it will. One, one assumes. Yes, definitely. I, I mean, um, the I've just been I've been really lucky to work on the the book that accompanies the VNA uh, exhibition that's coming up, and um, there's a lot of essays in that um, covering a lot of games that are coming out, and um, there's been particular attention paid to games that are made by women and it's funny because seeing these games they are immediately treading new genres there's no um there's incredible bravery i suppose if you're coming to this industry and there are very toxic corners of the internet um as as i'm sure you know about the kind of gamergate controversy from Mm. a few years ago um i think to kind of it, it almost kind of adds a layer of um of bravery to kind of be interested in tinkering around and make a game and be a woman so I wonder if that will kind of supercharge the amount of creativity that goes on in that area for that reason, you know, that there will be a positive, um, a kind of positive and opposite outcome from all of the toxicity that goes around uh, the internet about women in gaming, which I think is, um, you know, which could be an incredibly um, healing thing to happen in the medium that you'd see this reaction against it, just like we've had, you know, reactions in music, things like uh, punk or, you know, reactions in in literature kind of like things that are more postmodern I think maybe we might see that difference in gaming from this point yes yes well certainly hope so um just to finish I'm just interested to know as well as what what's the reaction when you've contacted designers uh, about your books I mean do people are people like yeah brilliant finally someone's uh, <laughs> acknowledging my contribution or are they do they not necessarily see themselves in those terms uh, do you mean in terms of contacting designers who want to design who I'd want to work for us Oh no! I mean, uh, in terms of the the game designers whose work oh, you're you're showcasing, sure. so you know, like the bitmap brothers, like have people been positive? Right. So there's a complete mix, and it is really like it's really black and white. So either, and it, this is like not very often. Either it's finally, 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 someone has recognised that this stuff was important, and, and and with that comes a lot of you know you've got to get this right. Um, so that happens quite a lot. Um, but more often yeah. than not, it's like what like. 
that that thing from 20 years ago like why are you interested in that um you know like i think people <laughs> i think the same reason that people threw away <laughs> like artwork into skips and didn't keep any of the discs and have forgotten everything is because at the time it was really bubblegum you know it was really kind of throwaway these things yeah. you know coin up machines there was they were they were fun and they were exciting but they were designed to eat money and they were um you know there was a lot of ego and creativity that went into them but at the same time it, you know it was like um music in the 80s was you know there was a level of stock Aiken and waterman type stuff that was like this is kind of throwaway right this is not forever and i think some people just thought of it like that it was a job for then and i think now we're kind of coming yeah. back and seeing these things as being culturally important and some people are incredibly baffled um but some yeah. people these are the people who have the most interesting things to say because they're incredibly modest and they you know they talk about these amazing things and often it's us telling them that what they've done is important or framing it within history so you know you walk the line you walk the line of pretension doing these books because if the person making it says yeah it's you know it was just a fun thing to do at the time and we you know we had long lunches in the pub and we then we did the game and we're kind of going you know this is incredibly culturally important i think there's like an intrinsic humor which i think is very video games as well that it doesn't take itself very seriously that you know there's a tension between the creators there and um you know, people like graphic designers and artists, you know, it can be incredibly egotistical and self-regarding. And it's really refreshing to find that there are corners of video game history where it's just, you know, people are kind of baffled by us really, really caring about these things and, you know, wanting to make books about them. That's what makes it fun. It's untrodden, yeah. untrodden history. Yeah, it really feels that way. It feels like a, it's interesting what, com- what forms part of the kind of popular culture canon over time that sometimes it's not the things you would ever expect in the moment but uh but they go on to matter hugely i think to people so it's good you're doing it <laughs> <laughs> well it's incredibly um, fun and um i think having come out of graphic design and graphic design history it is really refreshing to come at another industry completely blind and kind of like get to know all the characters and get to know this like extremely um warm and funny industry um that you know that yeah. hasn't you know been do- properly documented before it's all it's all brand new well that seems a good note to end on thanks very much for talking to us darren thank you very much you can read more about darren's work and read only memory on our website at creativereview.co.uk where there is also lots of other content about gaming thanks very much mm-hmm.